Welcome to Counter Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. My name is Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And we have two very special guests with us today uh, who are going to be going down a path of conversation with us that we're really excited about. Uh, this came up actually as uh, a comment on uh, social media and uh we were blessed and just so fortunate to have our two guests uh, agree to join us. Our first guest, um, I'm going to have her introduce herself. Uh, I'll start by saying that the topic that we're going to be exploring today is uh, the race and myth of, of race in Argentina's story, but largely speaking in Latin America, quite honestly, is the African diaspora that exists across our world uh, that most folks uh, may not be aware of or have perhaps even limited knowledge about uh, because there's not a whole lot of positive coverage that comes out in mainstream media. And of course, uh, we're your source for just expanding your knowledge base, you know, with all things that is race and racial justice and race equity. So with that in mind, I'm gonna turn over to my first guest, um, Elena. Why don't we have you introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are, your training, your background, uh, and then we'll move on to Sonia from there. So thank you for the opportunity to join you in such wonderful company. I'm Elena Isaacsonas. I am an assistant professor, hopefully soon to be an associate professor at Metropolitan State University. Um, the provost did approve. <laughs> so nice, congratulations! So yes. it's forthcoming any any it day is now. Forthcoming. So um, as I said, I'm uh, at Metropolitan State University, and I recently investigated my own journey of learning of racism in Argentina. Uh, and um, I look forward to this conversation. And it was instigated by my, by the next guest, Sonia Davila Williams. By your co-conspirator, it sounds like. Welcome, yeah. Sonia. Uh, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and training as well. Okay, thank you for having me over, inviting me for this wonderful topic. Um, and then associate professor at uh, Metropolitan State University, social work department. And um, the issue about, I consider myself an Afro-Boricua or Afro-Latino. Um, and I, the topic of, of African rootness in our country uh, it's something that is always interesting and have interest me because it's, it have affected the way that people perceive me and the way that uh, my community deal with the issue of race, class, and gender. So, Don, uh, you uh, you also happen to knew, know our, our guests uh, quite well uh, because of a, a work history that you have. So you want to unpack that for us and, and let us understand the relationship that you have with our two guests. 
Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, many will remember that uh, that prior to us leaving NPR and us joining Ampers Radio, I used to announce myself as an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan University. And um, so Elena and Sonia are ex-colleagues of mine, or still colleagues. Although I retired this past June, I still consider them colleagues. And um, and so, and it's absolutely wonderful news. I know how stressful it is going through tenure, um, having achieved tenure and becoming an associate professor. So I want to congratulate Elena. Thank you. And um, and also, you know, when, while I was there, Sonia Davili Williams was our chair of our department. So I have a very strong relationship with both these wonderful women. And I'm so excited to see them after uh, after leaving in June. We miss you, Don. Still around, still around. <laughs> well, I understand that you're you are uh, avid listeners of our of our uh, program anyway. So, you know, this is this is a win-win for for so many reasons. So, let's jump into this. Uh, let's first talk about Afro Latinx. You know, I mean. There is so much there to speak about, but let's just high level begin to have our listeners understand where that comes from. The transition, the diaspora that we have with the African uh, continent, uh, a lot of the uh, first African people that came to uh, the Americas, they came to the Caribbean island to Dominican Republic and to Puerto Rico. So, and if you go to the Dominican uh, Dominican Republic, you go to Puerto Rico, Haiti, you found that those Caribbean islands have a lot to do with the African and with the black, with black people. And it's a big, um, uh, a big amount of, of black people. And also if you go to places like Brazil, that have the largest uh, trade of slave in the Americas. In when I say American, including the United States, um, had the largest trade trades of black people. So we consider ourselves continuing some of those African roots, but and acknowledging that African root, but also acknowledging our Latino roots. Um, because we are both. We are probably people of dark skin or people that have some African traits and people that are um that have some the traditional Latinos costumes and traits too. And where did you grow up, Sonia? I grew up in Puerto Rico in a very small town on the northern coast of Puerto Rico, or called Barceloneta. You got me smart sorry, uh Mama Sonia, you got me smiling ear to ear. One, because you look like my Titi Mingo, who who would make me bathe in the cold waters on the volcano, and and other parts of my family who are from Fajardo and Ponce. Mm -hmm. So so uh, thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I you just made a point that's so important for folks, I think, to understand contextually. Eighty five percent of captive Africans that were brought to the Americas were brought to the Caribbean and South America. So not only is it apropos, I love the fact that you 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 come out and say it's plainly that this is part of our black story because if we really want to have a conversation about being black in the Americas, 85% of our experiences 
are outside of the United States. And so I thank you for contextualizing that so much. And now, Elena, um, what are your thoughts on that? So my story is very different with regards to identity. Being from Argentina, we have a pretty strong reputation among all Latinos regarding our arrogance. And our, we wear our arrogance with pride. And the arrogance comes from being solely descendant of Europeans. That is our identity. And what's happened is that historically, it has been told Afro-Latinos have been erased. One third of African uh, enslaved people were in Argentina, one third of that population. So normally when we speak about racism, especially in the United States, that shows up in multiple social indicators. It comes up in a census, it comes up in disparities in social services, in healthcare, and we have data, right? So let me tell you a story of the birth of Argentina. The first president of Argentina, Bernardino Rivadavia, was an African descendant. And when he ran for the presidency, he was derisively called the chocolate president. When he showed up in the census, he was listed as white. The entire process in Argentina is called blanqueamento, that is to make white. The whitening of someone, yep. So it's a replacement of the peoples with white people's identity. And so the history of enslavement in Argentina is very, very strong. And it didn't just take place in Buenos Aires, which is the capital. It also took place in the interior. Primarily, slavery was sponsored and promoted by the Catholic Church. And because they were strong on people being married, because that's the sacrament, then they sought to promote the blanqueamento by having enslaved people mate and make babies inside the convents with white people. It's a horrific story. Mm. People came and they were, they were branded with hot irons to mark their descendancy. So the story is a long-standing one from the birth of the Argentine Republic. Towards the middle of the century, they, there were conflicts brewing. And the conflict, unlike the North-South conflict in the United States, is the interior of the country versus the, ex versus the capital. So the people who, of the interior, as happens in many nations, were, were, were regarded as inferior, whereas the sophisticates of the capital were the superior ones. That conflict brewed into an explosive level in the mid-century of the 19th century. We had a dictator called Juan Manuel Rosas, who I think of as an archetype 
of our past president in the United States. What he did was he promised liberty to enslaved people and bought their loyalty, later to deny it. His rival was Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, who is lauded as an educator. He came to the United States and received uh, U.S. education, and he became a president. And when he became president, he founded thousands of schools through the countryside, and he promoted a very strong policy of encouragement of people from European countries because they were the civilized people. So he wanted to civilize, quote unquote, Argentinians. So strong was this identity, it became identity formation. So it was responsible for a strong claim by Argentinians that they are Europeans and and it's part of our myth-making. The myth is that our black people do not exist, that perhaps they were all killed off in the in the Argentinian um, frontier wars, or that they were killed off in the during the yellow fever. So the myth is explained of how it is that there are no Afro descendants in Argentina, and also that fostered a sense of disidentification and shame because people were shamed and ostracized as being African. And yet African contributions to Argentinian identity Mm -hmm. are very, very strong to this day. The tango is an African, Mm -hmm. is an African as, I mean, what could not be Argentinian (laughs) if not tango? Tango is pure African movement. Malambo. African too. Mm. <laughs> Quilombos. So is this is this the, the the this is the the title of the paper, right? How did this conversation spark this com- how did this paper spark this conversation with Don and Louis and brought brought you guys to us? The spark came from Sonia because I am a very avid football fan because I'm Argentinian. <laughs> we're talking real football, not American. We're talking, football. yeah, we're talking right, real right, right. football. No, you said yeah, it right. We're not talking American football. football. It's yeah. football. <laughs> That's football. The most it's of the world football. says football. It's yeah. football. And Sonia <laughs> said to me sometime early this last summer, she said, "Doña Elena," like Sonia <laughs> says. <laughs> she says, "How come you talk so much about Argentinian football?" Why are there no black players in the Argentinian te- oh. team? There you go, Sonia. There you go. She says, you need to check that out. <laughs> and then we have a conversation about how was uh, black people being erased uh, in, right. in Argentina. Uh, and Elena said, I, I would have to investigate that more. It's an interesting topic. But, uh, but it just is something that it happened not just in Argentina, but I think it has happened in all our countries in Latin America. The mm-hmm. blanqueamiento was a, a policies, were policies that were created by the Spaniards to do to erase blackness, and it was not just oh, it was not just 
a, something written, but it was also a biolog biological and social policies were created for Blancamento in our countries. And when I think of biological, they decided they were going to bring Europeans to our countries in order to increase the amount of white people in our countries. So we will kind of like then intermix and, and, um, and become whiter, have more white features that it were more likely for them to like us. But into that blanqueamiento, what happened was that they also, a lot of our black people were put into or slums or were put into places where they could not receive the help that they needed when they got sick. And in Argentina, it happened that when we have oh, the yellow fever, a lot of the communities that were oh, white or predominantly white were helped by the government. But then where they caught where the black people were, they put black people in slums, those were not served during the yellow fever. So a lot of the black people in Argentina died during the yellow fever because the mm. government did not help them because the government's purpose yeah. was to uh, to white white the whiteness of Argentina. So they were really intentional. What you're saying, Sonia, is that the government was strategically intentional about uh, doing nothing to help black Argentinians during the yellow yes. fever and let them die off naturally, literally. And at the same time, infusing more whiteness by bringing in more white Europeans into the mix so that they could um, redefine the, the racial um constituency, if you will, and members of Argentina. That's that's what you're saying. Not only that, it was a very deliberate policy of erasure from any kind of social indicators like census. People were labeled white when they were not white, thereby aiding the myth that there were no African people. In in 2006, the former president of Argentina said in Brazil, when he was asked about the football team, he said, we do not have those that kind of black problem in Argentina <sighs> because we don't have black people. Mm. I, I remember that, I think. I remember that happening in that statement and just people going, what? Yeah. what? Because that's such a weird yes. statement, and I think it's something that we we hear in, in the U.S. and in Minnesota. We don't we, we don't, don't think about that, right? That. So like that coming up, and somebody saying that it's like we it doesn't really occur to us to to think that that would be the response, especially from like you know your president. Like that's not what you would expect to hear as the as the response. That's a racist response if I ever heard one. No. So, so there's a there's there's quite a few things that I think are are really powerful about this. One is the the difference in um, in in the conceptualizing of blackness and black identity 
in Caribbean and South America versus mm-hmm. the United States. And, and the Catholic Church has a lot mm-hmm. to do with that in so much as what you heard here is that we are going to we are going to erase blackness through procreation, through mestizo creation, through all of these different things, which is very different. Um, and, and the one thing I want to pull out here is the fact that that implies mm-hmm. then a base level humanity. That was not the same mentality mm-hmm. process in the United States, Protestant-led, which subhumanized. Now, now get it, don't, don't get me wrong. There was a whole lot right. of subhumanizing going in South America as well. But on a biological stance, yes. very harped very much on the subhumanizing or, 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 or dehumanizing literally, biologically, of black folks as their own separate racial grouping, separate from whites biologically, right which is a very different. And one of those mm. differences is, you know, in the Protestant tradition, you don't have the same compilation. If you're a, you, if you're a priest, you have cons- conversion totals. You have all these metrics that you have to hit. There is a fluidity. Right. And it's not just me, uh, Jeffrey um, Ogbo and, and a few other writers in the ethnic studies realm talk a little bit about the, the fluid dehumanization of, of black and indigenous peoples in the Caribbean and South American experiences. Um, uh, Jeffrey Ogbu talks about that quite a bit, but then also um, Omi and Wanant and a few other racial formation writers, but then also comparing that to what's happening in the United States. So that's one thing that jumps out right away is how interesting the practices are. Same end goals, different processes. The other piece that comes to mind, and it's a question that I'm wondering that I have, and Don, I think you might be ready to ask this question too. So uh, I'll just, uh, but 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 this is happening in the space that is indigenous land. So you know, the moment that we start out talking about um, Afro-Boricua, right? You have you have the intersection of Spanish, Black, and Taino identities. Uh, the same thing is happening with the, with with populations in South America, and I'm curious. Was it, you know, how that comes into the mix in this in this um, uh, Blanquimento process as we're talking about Africans? So so those are some of the wonderings that are coming up just hearing uh, this important context. It, 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 and I think some of that Blanquimento that we're talking about uh, happened and still happened even in the 20th, 20th century. If you look at uh, Dominican Republic, that it's uh, half is Haiti and half is Dominican Republic. And when Trujillo was the president of the Dominican Republic, he killed and slaughtered more than 30 million Haitians that were at the border of Dominican Republic because he didn't want them to come to to, to Dominican Republic. So he go to Haiti, kill about 30 million people there, 20 to, to to 30, so they cannot cross. And then what he did after that was he asked Japanese people to come to Dominican Republic. So he had people from, Domin- from Japan coming to Dominican Republic because he wanted to start the blanqueamiento of Dominican Republic. So a lot of those things happened during the 20th century, and you find that a lot of the people in our families will even tell us sometimes, do not marry somebody darker than you. Marry yes. somebody wider yep. or lighter than you. Or people That's that right. might have fine, what they call fine features, that mean that have white people feature. If you're black, at least make the person to have white features. But don't marry somebody darker than you because then your babies are going to be darker. 
So all that is happening in our countries and we do not want to talk about it. And we think, uh, oh, we do it in fun, but it's not in fun. It's, it's mm -hmm. a reality. Yeah, it's happening today is what you're saying. It happens today in our families. Well, you, you know, um, Sonia, um, that that right there triggers um, a memory when I was a uh, freshman at McAllister back in the early 70s. And um, <clears throat> and so I was talking I was talking to a young woman um, and she was Puerto Rican. Um, up to that point, I, I had met Puerto Ricans, but never really had kind of a deep discussion. And so I was we were exchanging information and she mentioned to me very casually that um, she said, you know, if you were to come back with me to Puerto Rico for a visit, my father would be very upset with me. And and I, I looked at her, I said, well, well, why? And then she explained what you just talked about. She explained that, that, um, that, and I consider myself pretty fair, right? I, I consider you myself are, pretty yeah. fair, but she told me that I would be too dark, right? Her, her father would consider me too dark. And, and, um, and I remember sitting there thinking, wow, even in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, my, you know, from what I had seen, what I'd heard, I thought, you know, most Puerto Ricans kind of look like me or darker. Right. And so I, I was stunned when she told me that. I mean, and I remember thinking, oh my God, even Puerto Rico is like the United States. You know, I mean, you know, because that, you know, hey, I mean, <laughs> aside from being the United States, <laughs> it is the United States, yeah. But, but, but I'm you're talk, talking I'm mainstream, talk, like, mainstream. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, you know, yeah. they went in yeah. and conquered Puerto Rico, Hawaii, us, and everyone else. Right. So, you, so when I right. make that comment, I'm talking from, from that indigenous perspective and not from a colonizing gotcha. perspective. So I thought Puerto Rico wasn't dealing with that. And um and so that I remember be uh, was a very shocking conversation for me, while we you know while we usually talk about the uh, the intersection of race here in 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 uh, North America, um, and it's and even though we kind of started on that black white continuum, you know there were always indigenous individuals who were there, who were essentially either wiped out mm -hmm. <laughs> completely genocide or or just totally forgotten about and it sounds like the experience is essentially the same throughout the americas whether it's south america central america and and the united states there's there's a couple of um i wanted to circle back to anthony's comment on the difference of the fluidity with protestant folk in the united states thought it to even inscribe in the bible of like prohibit bi biblical readings of enslaved people, they thought it was their God-given right to hold people in enslavement. Catholic theology is quite different. Catholic theology allows for everybody to go to heaven regardless. And so in that sense, Catholic theology is much more democratic, if you will, <laughs> about how you get go get to heaven. But if I threw out the papal the papal uh, bull that allowed Catholics when they came to this country, um, and if we and if indigenous populations were not saved, they also, according to that papal bull, had the 
the right to enslave or kill them. So, right, but, but that doesn't. I mean, that, but, that's, but that's, I, that's, that's a. Pa- I mean, the papal decree. But but are. But that's different that's in the diff- United States. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, you're, these are these are two important issues that both have to do with this exactly. But I think the the, the difference that is coming here is one that's that that. Because yes, they're all bad, right? So it's all a degree of bad. But, <laughs> but at least on the right, yeah, right. Let's, but, let's but, be clear on that. Yeah, but but one of the things, and I, and I and I'm I'm blanking on the scholar, and I've got to I've got to try to find it. But one of the uh, uh, it sticks with me to this day that even in the papal bull, when you are given you know quote unquote Christian right, and I'm saying this as a pastor, right? Uh, but a, but an Afrocentric pastor, pre-European enlightenment. That's a whole other conversation. Anyway. The the <laughs> at least you know uh, not at least but what what he said was the 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 papal bull gives you you know quote unquote gives you the right to remove these people but what you who you're removing is people still in the Protestant North American United States tradition space they tried to couch this thing even further by subhumanizing black folks in particular even to the degree that said you know the 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 reason that it's okay. Is because these aren't actually real, really people. They're a subcategory. They're more like apes and monkeys and all these other things. And so when I talk about the fluidity, that's what that's what I mean. That that the the mechanism to get to the same evil just is just functions differently. And it can be a way to help understand why something like blacamiento works better. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to couch this in there, but but in in the in this colonial process, that plays differently in Catholic-based country spaces than would in a in a in a Protestant-based space, because I wouldn't even get to that conversation because you're ascribing humanity. Even John Newton, who pinned, who coined the 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 hymn "Amazing Grace." Right? How dare we as black folks say amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? You ain't the wretches that were doing that. And John Newton wouldn't even come around to his abolitionism until after that was pinned. So even while he was pinning that song, still had this Protestant mentality of a subhuman category. So Anthony, as it I, I understand what you're saying, but I also people. think so, so that's the what nuance I mean here that maybe we should being call a out a, a little stronger, having been raised in Catholic grade school and high school. Um, and I, I call myself a recovering Catholic, and I'll tell you why, um, is the hypocrisy by which Catholicism operates, right? They say in, in, in Catholicism, you've got the, the Ten Commandments and you have the standard, except if, except if you're black, except if you're a refugee, except if you're gay, except uh, if you're trans. I mean, if, if you know, except if you're, you have AIDS. I mean, there's just all of these these contradictions. And that's why I walked away from the church, actually, the Catholicism back in the mid 1980s, when the Pope at that point was presented with a question with regard to wearing uh, prophylactic um, measures between a husband and wife, if one of the partners, if the if the man had AIDS. And the Pope said, no, you, you still cannot use any prophylactic measures. Um, and And then, you know, then that means you are Exposing the wife. So you're talking to about like condoms. Contract AIDS, and at that point there was okay. no remedy, there was no <laughs> cure. Yeah, we're talking condoms. Sorry, I mean, yeah, prophylactic. You know, <laughs> condoms. Thank you. Um, and and for me, you know, I was thinking like, wait a minute. So Pope, you're saying men can't who have AIDS cannot wear condoms because that's against Catholic Catholicism, which is the only reason you're supposed to have relations with anybody is if you're married and you're there for procreating, so having babies, right? Um, and so I'm sitting there. So how does that reconcile with the, the commandment of thou shall not kill? 
I mean, there's just all of these dissonances that come up for me, you know, and that was the last straw. The other thing I'll say for me was racism is very much embedded into Catholicism. And I witnessed it firsthand throughout my schooling as it pertained to my friends. But then more closely, when I decided that, you know, my partner for life, my life partner would be the man I've been with for like 35 years now is a black man. And my dad was so troubled by that. He went to the priest to ask for advice. And the priest said, you are, you are wrong. You are right. Your daughter should not be with this black man. And they didn't know anything about my husband. Well, he wasn't my husband then, right? And the only reason that um, my father objected to our relationship is because of my husband's skin. And the only reason the priest objected to our relationship was my husband's skin color. And so we're talking about some really entrenched, right? Hypocrisy. Look, 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 Luz, Luz, what you just said, you just given yourself another point to underscore your own point, which is one of the reasons why I love when you talk, because you just be, be layering it in. But because when we talk about Blancamiento, right, Blancamiento, the the process, right, we, we're talking about the the real intentional processes that, that that both of you have already brought forward. But 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 you know, the the hypocrisy piece of it goes even deeper because the intersection of 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 religion to all of this, which is a part of this ra- this colonial and racial project that we're talking about, um, is in itself um, uh, hip- hypocrit- uh, hypocritical because the founding theologians in in Euro Catholic formation. In the formation of the Catholic Church, which takes a branch of Christianity outside of the yes. continent of Africa and moves through Europe, has at its root African theologians, Tertullian, Augustine, all of the form founding fathers uh, that folks prescribe are African peoples. And so this 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 racial and colonial project is there and present even before the triangular trades, the African trades, the slave trades, the chattel slavery trades in the Americas. And so when we talk about this, we've got to tie it all the way to to, to some of its deep origins, right? Folks exactly. in the entire European Enlightenment arriving at philosophies that indigenous and African peoples have understood for thousands of years prior to it, but yet we send you to Enlightenment thinkers for your philosophy. We center mm-hmm. Greece when Greek folks went to Africa to study in the first place. We have pyramids and all these things that are present in indigenous communities here in the United That's States. Right you know, before. So, so, uh, so, so I, I think it's important to connect all of these, but, but. And the but, whitening of Jesus, by the way. Oh, come Incidentally. On, come on. Oh my gosh. I'm, I was about to get there as well. Guys, I was about to get there. Show. Okay. It is a Let's whole just, it, it is. But not unconnected. It is a whole nother show. But Sorry. I'm looking at. But not unconnected. But not unconnected. <laughs> Sonia, what does Jesus look like in Puerto Rico? What what is his what is his skin color that you see? White, blonde, you know. blue eyes. Uh, but you know, and, and that is part of what the Spaniards brought to us, because mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. to think that the first people that brought slaves to America were the Spaniards, and the Spaniards have a problem with black people because the Moors were in Spain from so many yes. years, centuries. And the yes. Spaniards just kicked the Moors out, but they couldn't kick all of them. And why are the Moors? The Moors people that are black, that are black and they're not just black. They are Arabs and they and are the Muslim. Jews. So they have yes. a hard time dealing with all these black Muslim people that yes. were taking over the country. So when the Spaniards Inquisition came, they just kicked all the Moors out. 
And those people came, some of those Moors came with the Spaniards to the Americas. Actually, the first black man in Puerto Rico was a Moor that came with the Spaniards to Puerto Rico. So those were the peoples that we said, oh, those were the people that said, oh, let's go to Africa and get some black people and bring them back here so they can do the work that they, oh, that the Tainos cannot do because the Tainos refused to do the work and some of them died because the Spaniards brought all kinds of illness and some of them run to the mountains because they didn't want to deal with the Spaniards. Some of those more people went to Africa to get Africans to bring them to America. So, you know, when you think about Catholic people coming here, the Catholic have in mind already that Black people were inferiors because those were the people that were in Spain for so many years. So let's just let's just go deeper into where all that hate for black people come from the Spaniards and from the Catholic Church. So Sonia, help our, our listeners understand who are Tainos, right? I mean, we we know, but help us understand. Let's our audience may not understand Taino, right? T A I N O is that's how we spell it. But go ahead. Yes, Tainos are the Native uh, Americans, the Native Indian, indigenous people of Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. If you go to Cuba, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Puerto Rico. Tainos were the Indians that used to live, the Native Americans that used to live in those islands. They were the owners of the property of Puerto Rico. <laughs> they used to call it Borinquen. Borinquen. That's yep. what it comes. Yeah. That's what we say, Boricua. So we're, we're, we're talking about the original people of this entire area that you mentioned are all indigenous until they were colonized then. Yeah, the, the very people who Christopher Columbus, when getting lost, arrived at and within five days began to institute policies around chopping off of the hands, enslaving another brutality when when arriving in what he thought was Exactly. Ending. Yeah. Sonia, you had a really, you shared with us a, a presentation um, and, and I was really struck by this figure because I, I, I knew it in a broad level, but I hadn't seen the, the number that during Latin America's colonial colonial period, there are about 15 times as many Africans that were taken um, oh, to yeah. Spanish and Portuguese colonies yes. than were taken to the U.S. And that, right, and that a fourth of the total population. So talk to us a little bit. I mean, that that I think is a new piece of information that our, well, our audience may uh, not be familiar with. Most of the people were came to the Caribbean and to Brazil. Brazil, I think, was the main mm -hmm trade for mm -hmm. Africans and for slavery in, in America. And from those people that came from the Caribbean, some of them were trade, for, especially from Cuba, uh, were trade to um, Haiti, were trade to uh, South America, to United States, southern part of United States. If you look at the uh, Creole um, New Orleans, um, if you look at uh, the traditions of that area, some of those are slave traditions that came from the Caribbean, from Haiti, from Cuba, and from Dominican Republic. Those were slaves. Actually, when Haiti won the war with French for freedom, that freedom war, some of those, some of them were kicked out of the of Haiti, and they ended up in Cuba. And Cuba didn't want those African either, and they ended up in New Orleans. That was the the run of the when 
when you go and you look at some of the history, um, what you just said, Mama Sonia, is, I'm sorry, I it looked just like my tita Minga, and I call her uh, Mama Tita. I just that's, so I call you Mama Sonia. I, it's just how I how I be. So I apologize in that regard. Um, but follow the riverways, and so one of the things that we don't we don't talk about is what Miss Sonia just just had talked about. Selma, Selma, Alabama, is a town on the river and was a slave trading stop. In fact, if you go to Selma, underneath the Eben Pettus Bridge, they still have the buildings and the pins underneath, mm-hmm. and the, can't go into tunnels anymore for structural mm-hmm. issues. But the holding tunnels are still there. Uh, the Mississippi brought folks in through New Orleans and through Mississippi, and all the way all the way up. You know, we've got stories that stretch very very few, but all the way to to, to Minnesota. So, so when we talk about this doorway in, um, you know, as, as we talk about 85% of the, of the, of the, uh, African slave experience in the Americas being in the Caribbean and South America, we, we got to see those connections and how that spreads around. Even when you go all the way to Panama, you know, first, the first indigenous, uh, folks in that area are put to work to try to borrow a, a, a pathway through, Overland, and then you've got this introduction, this reintroduction um, that leads to yet again uh, uh, some blancamiento that that happens when you begin to have two classes of workers uh, that even work on the Panama Canal space that are imported from and using the same importation networks and practices of the Caribbean and South America. And so we 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 aren't not only un, aren't unconnected, but this process that you two have laid out for, for us to, to, to think about this continues to have its vestices, even to um, me looking at my, my, my step-grandmother in the face in Fajardo as she looks at me and she says, and she pinches my cheek and says, oh, my little negrito, and then keeps mm-hmm, me right. out of the sun mm-hmm. the whole time mm-hmm. I'm there so that mm-hmm. I don't get too dark um, because she doesn't want to send me back to, to, to Minnesota uh, having gotten so dark. So that still, and she loved me every bit ounce of myself, right? And would right. still probably, and would still, and I've seen her speak to and talk about pride in being Afro Boricua, but still had these patterns of trying to do everything she could to keep us lighter in the summer. So, so it has some staying power. One thing that I do want to highlight, though, is that Argentina <laughs> stands alone. <laughs> in its sense of pride of not being identified with its Africanness, despite the fact that one third of its population were Afro-descendants. And so with me and everybody I grew up around, this story of the the very existence of Afro-descendants was never ever acknowledged. I recently gave a workshop on it and there were Argentinian social workers and psychologists two weeks ago in Chicago who said they never knew about it. So it's a shared experience. And only recently has there began to be a reckoning about that. And for the first time ever, thanks to native peoples, what are called the pueblos originarios, in Argentina, has there become to have an acknowledgement of Native peoples' existence and now also an acknowledgement of Afro-descendants. For example, there's a huge population of Cape Verdeans in Argentina that were heretofore not acknowledged. 
when Afro-descendants are in Argentina, people say, where are you from? To the person who is phenotypically Afro-descendant. To the point where, yeah, this (laughs) this, um, Argentinian artist a year or so ago talked about her experience as a singer. And everybody in um, Latin America, she traveled everywhere, they all thought she was Colombian or Venezuelan or Brazilian. Nobody guessed that she was Argentinian. And a week before she she appeared on, um, on a television segment, she talked about how the police stopped her to ask what her questions, what her identity papers were from. And she told police that her family had been there since the 18th century. They were older inhabitants than any of the 56 million people who came from Belgium, France, Italy. You know, our Pope is Italian, the current Pope from Argentina, right? So they, they do not acknowledge her, her right to exist, to be identified. And so it's a, it's a very deeply held denial of racism. And, and I think that and Argentina stands alone on that. Well, yes, and, and kind of no, <laughs> insofar as this is not a, an oppression Olympics, right? So we're not trying to make it who's the worst one here, right? But Mexico, so Mexico in 2015, finally, finally decided that the next census would actually count how many Afro-Mexicans there are, right? So in 2020, 2020 was the first time in Mexican history <clears throat> to have Afro-Mexicans counted. 2020, imagine that. Imagine wow. the erasure of your, bo- of your humanity, yes. of your family, of your lineage to not be acknowledged for over just centuries, right? It's not even going to allow mm-hmm. you to report that you are who you are. And the, the census finally then, the 2020 census for Mexico showed that there are about 2.5 million Afro-Mexicans yes, um, in Mexico. But in Mexico oh, for first time in 2014 was the first time that it was allowed to say that you were the African descendants because for centuries they decided, mm-hmm. no, we don't have black nope. people in Mexico. Uh, That's Mexico. right. That, that just blew my mind you know just like wow you know and uh, and we all have i think all latin america we we have very little knowledge of the real history of our ancestors as black people we tend to acknowledge white people and what they had done for our country but not what what black people had done for our country. And if you look at Puerto Rico, you will see J-Lo and Back Bunny and all these people, and they all look white. But the people that really start reggaeton, that was Don Omar, and it hmm. was oh, uh, Looney Tunes, they were that skin. Those people were never got famous. But then you got Bad Bunny that is light skin, look white, 
He is mm-hmm. Raymond, and he made money mm-hmm. out of that. This this preference of the the lighter skin, I think, is in, in all of our communities. I think we could all go on about that. This is a really interesting topic. I just want to also say, if you want to read um, the paper that Elena wrote, you can find that at the um, African American Registry in their Journal of Registry, a really great organization. So look them up, and you can read the latest journal uh, edition from January 2022 is where you'll find that. Thank you, Haley. I was going to pub that. The na- the title of uh, Elena's paper is Myths and Race in Argentina's Story of Identity with Minnesota Musings, which I, I love that. Uh, so we've gone kind of around the world, you know, in uh, observations. So it's, it's time to bring it back to Minnesota. Uh, and there's actually a sense in there, as I read your paper, that really struck me. So I'm going to I'm going to say it out loud. And this is what you wrote, Elena. The Minnesota cultural manifestation of racism is deadly because when the common understanding of what is good is violated, cultural tools such as not responding, deflection, gaslighting, among other strategies are deployed to silence those who are seen as different. That really spoke to me. So what I meant by that is that Minnesota has a very strong identity as progressive. And that sense of identity of progressive depends very highly on a common agreement of what is good and for nobody to stand out. You can't be saying, you know, my house is the best. You have to say, well, my house is a big house, but the wife wanted that house, not me. You're supposed to like really be very (laughs) modest. Um, You... You don't go outside of the norm. And so in that context, if your skin is different, looks different, if your features are different than what is commonly agreed to be good, then automatically in people's brains, the assumption is that they are to be feared, that they are different, that they should be treated differently. What it is that constitutes a good society for the provision for others is very insulated in Minnesota and accounts for the tremendous, horrible disparities that occur. As, you know, as a Minnesotan, um, even with that explanation, just totally uh, eliminates my people as Anishinaabe who were here prior to any Swedes, Norwegians, Germans, or anyone else coming here. But yet I always have to hear Minnesota described in those terms as opposed to, to you know, the histories of our own people. And so, and, and, you know, so I mean, but, but that's just, a, a, again, a much deeper conversation. And I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, because yeah. that is true from these folks who came over here um, from those European countries to take the land that was taken from us mm-hmm. in order to pull up their socks and go the whole nine right. yards. Right. So but I'm just saying that even that would lead us to a whole other discussion. There is so much in 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 this topic. I just think I just think your point is very well taken. Well, it, it, it's been a wonderful conversation, you know, um, about who belongs and who does, who does not belong and uh, the Afrocentric or the, the bla, uh, blanqueamiento of, of the uh, Latino culture. Um, so uh, it, it's a long conversation that one hour doesn't do justice to the whole topic. Right. And I I did enjoy the conversation. Um, it's uh, 
to me, it's, it's difficult uh, to talk about this topic. Not difficult. It's interesting to talk about the topic because well, most people see me, they don't assume that I'm Puerto Rican when I come, especially when mm-hmm. I'm with Latinos. The first thing that they ask me is, what do you learn? What do you learn to speak Spanish so well? Um, and, you know, <laughs> it's just like uh, sometimes I feel like I just took a course, an hour course on the Internet. Because <laughs> you're so brilliant, it would only take you an hour to do that. <laughs> and, you know, it's difficult because I do have a very strong accent and I'm very aware of that. So in one way, I do not belong here with the uh, uh, African-Americans because you have an accent where you're coming from. And then I go to the Latino and you have, you speak Spanish so well, where you coming, where do you, where are you from, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's a ambivalence that I have all the times when I'm around people. Should I speak or should I maintain, keep quiet? Uh, But it's a wonderful conversation. And thank you to all of you for inviting me. Or and Elena over to have a wonderful, such a wonderful discussion. Well, Sonia, part of it is that you forget our names, so y'all, what you can tell everybody, you can tell everybody what you called me. I called brother men. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we will sign off. Uh, thank you both. This has been uh, an incredibly en- enlightening uh, discussion, and. I, much like what's been said, we'll have to bring you back uh, and, and go into this even deeper. Uh, my name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I've expressed are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. My name is Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark African Methodist Episcopal Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. Don Eubanks, associate of Dendro's group and member of the Mille Lacs panel with Ghibli Indians. I'm Elena Isaksonas, and it's been a pleasure and honor being in such wonderful company. Thank you for welcoming me. This is Sonia Davida-Williams. Thank you for having me over. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you both, and we'll see you next time. And thank you for being loyal listeners of Counter Stories as well. Thank you. This has been Counter Stories a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>